When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode three of the Socially Distant Sports Bar. It's our little way of keeping our love of sport going during this uh, time of corona. Uh, we have set up a bar. It's a metaphorical bar at the moment, but hopefully it will become a real bar as and when we're allowed to leave our houses. Uh, Ellis is in his <coughs> branch of the bar. Mike is in his as well. We bring... A few clips from YouTube for us to talk about, a documentary and three books uh, will be coming your way before the end of the episode. Uh, Ellis, how are you this week? All good? Very good. How are you? Not bad, mate. Not bad. Yeah. I don't drink a huge amount. Oh, I don't drink as much as I used to. Yeah. Uh, And I had a few glasses of wine with my tea. Mm. And I was... um, I was was starting to get quite drunk. I thought I'm too drunk to do the socially distant sports bar. So, Can I just say, well done on saying tea, not dinner. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's your start point. That is good. So uh, I, I helped myself to my Easter egg uh, to try and sob myself. You've up, basically which... done a garage run. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the socially distant equivalent of nipping to the garage later on. But uh, what a what a fantastic mix as well. The um, red red wine and a Cadbury's cream egg Easter egg. Superb. I've just been drinking my cider. Funny enough. Just to take the taste of Easter eggs out of my mouth. <laughs> well, we've been keeping a lot of people entertained over the last couple of weeks. Thank you for all the nice mm. feedback we've had. A lot of you having runs listening to us, beers in the garden, barbecues, baths, which is a bit weird. Um, yeah. And a few of you doing proper good work as well in the world. Uh, quick hello to Stokey Dad one uh, who is a child protection social worker and in his spare time is also volunteering as a healthcare assistant at the Nightingale Hospital. Good, man. Oh, combining good job with good spare time job as well, although his wife thinks it's to try and escape the children and the homeschooling. Gitter Ellis Williams been in touch as well, who good is name. a healthcare Scotty assistant. That, that is as Welsh a name as you're ever going to get, I would have thought. Oh, yes. I was, so I was just going to say, although when I worked in the civil service, I used to work, share a desk with Gitto from um, Super Oh, Gitto Price, who was one of my heroes and told me just before um, the Wales-Russia game in Toulouse during the Euros that I was his favourite Jack. Well, favourite Jack, I think it might have been the only Jack he liked. <laughs> but, uh, well, did, he, did he come to see you? Did he make a special effort to come and see your Edinburgh show two years ago? Uh, no, he didn't, no. He came to see oh. mine. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I right, then one nil, one nil, Bubbins. 
Uh, so Gitter uh, will be a qualified nurse after completing his hours as a student nurse, hopefully at the end of May. He's working hard now. Work, and Alex Griffith also been in touch, uh, part of the Brecon teaching community who are on a rotor to ensure that key workers can access their roles effectively. So shout out to all the teachers who are still working through this all as well. We um, haven't got any listeners who have immoral jobs. I, I hope there, we have. There, no, there are no, no hedge fund managers or... Uh, People who work in the arms trade. If you make if you make landmines, you please get in touch with the show. Yeah, you work in a wet market in China. We'd like we'd like to hear from you, please. At distant pod, uh, first clip for this week. Then this goes to looking through the list. This one's going to Alice. Clip number one comes to Al. This is an infamous rant from the Channel Four documentary Leighton Orient Club for a Fiver which was uh, first broadcast in 1995. Now, Leighton Orient were a complete basket case of a club. Um, Their owner, Tony Wood, had lost his coffee business um, because of the Rwandan Civil War, so the club was losing £10,000 a week. Now, I went to Brisbane Road with the Swans just after this period, so, you know, they they weren't a club that could afford to lose £10,000 a week. They were hemorrhaging money. To try and cut costs, they only had a squad of 13 players um, whose wages were being paid for oh. by the F- by the PFA. And they couldn't buttress the squad with loan players because there was an eight-month transfer embargo. I could be wrong. I don't think anything like this really had been on telly before. I know that the documentary I chose a fortnight ago, Graham Taylor, yeah. um, An Impossible Job, was broadcast a, about a year or a year previous. Now, Sitton... I'd had quite a good career as a football aide. Played for Chelsea, played in the top five uh, divisions of English football. I think he'd been on the books at Arsenal. I think he'd played for West Ham as well and had played for Orient between 85 and 91. It was his first senior management job in football. It became his last. Um, the clip I've chosen has become legendary. I think most football fans have seen it, but they are losing to Brentford. The players aren't listening to him. They're not following his game plan and the following happens. Good players all the time. Don't you know how profound that is if you're not examining the fucking words? Because you've had two good performances and you think, I'm fucking Bertie Big Bollocks tonight. I'll fucking play how I like. But you won't play your like, because if you play your like, I'll fucking stick the youth team. So if I'm going to take abuse from a bunch of cockroaches behind me, I'll take abuse by doing it my way. And that is fucking conformity, not fucking non-conformity. So you, you little cunt, when I tell you to do something, and you, you fucking big cunt, when I tell you to do something, do it. And if you come back at me, we'll have a fucking right sort out of here. All right? And you can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Because by the time I'm finished with you, you'll fucking need it. So there we have it. Now, apologies, <laughs> apologies for the language. <laughs> One of the finest clips of anything. <laughs> um, th- I've, I've read a lot about John Sitton over the last couple of days, and I, I feel very sorry for him. He's now a cabbie. He works as a black cab driver in London. Wow. He hasn't worked in football since. I think he's had a couple of jobs in non-league football. I think he was briefly at Enfield and he was briefly at Leighton, right. who were a non-league team down the road from Leighton Orient. Um, that was it. He became... Hang on a minute. There's a team. There's a Leighton Orient say, and there's a yeah. Leighton... Yes, so I think Leighton played a much, much lower level. If you're Leighton, you need something after your name as well. Because it just sounds yes. like you've got the word Leighton Orient wrong or you don't know how to yeah. abbreviate teams. Yeah, that kind of stuff happened in dressing rooms up and down the country, week in, week out. Mm. 
but it had never been televised. So obviously it's before the mobile phone era, before the camera phone era. So none of that stuff was ever leaked. And even the things like um, Ferguson kicking a boot at David Beckham, you know, that's not been caught on camera. And I still think that there is something for fans quite sacrosanct about dressing rooms. You know, if you haven't played professional sport, there is something quite... um, well, I mean, it's there's a mystery to the dressing room yeah. because we all want to know what's going on in there and none of us are privy to it, apart from on this documentary. I mean, I, I read about him. He he suffered from depression quite badly after this because he realised that his, that his career was over. But to see a man who was trying to save a club he played for from being relegated, mm. just run out of ideas and fighting with one hand by his back because he's only got a squad of 13 players to choose from. Well, just to offer out, <laughs> you offered out the one <laughs> Then he said, and bring him with you, and then and then bring somebody else, and, and then bring yeah. him dinner. But he's not pissing about, is he? <laughs> he really isn't. He basically, I love it. He says to the one guy, yeah, you're, you're, don't bother coming back, go to the job club, basically, and yeah. then to his well, mate, you can probably join him. It wasn't like, we've all been in a, or I've certainly been in changes where there's idle threats bandied around from, from your coach or your manager, yeah. right? But you know, if you're that club in that situation, when he's saying to you, you're out of a fucking job, yeah. You, You're on yeah. the job. He's, yeah. not, he's not messing around. You really are. Yeah, set. yeah, yeah. And, you, and was that was it? And it was half time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to go and play the second half knowing you've been sacked. <laughs> this... you, imagine, you imagine working in Tesco's, right? You, you turn up on your break. <laughs> the manager walks in. Gary Bachelder, in, in my case, in, in Barry Tesco, Cross Cross Tesco's in, in, in the late eighties, right? Gary Bachelder was the boss. <laughs> if you'd have walked in and said to me, Bubbins, you fucking prick, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you're sacked, right? You've got a problem, then I'll fucking take you outside now to the trolley park and bring your mate with you and bring your fucking dinner as well. Right. <laughs> we're going back on, you're back on the air. Get back on the checkout. Like, can you imagine going back at work yeah. after that? Also, Fuck off, also, Gary. He sacked defender and fan favourite Terry Howard on camera in the dressing room at half-time. Terry's an ex-teammate of mine, who I like very, very much. He's good company when you go for a night out. As a manager and a coach, he's not what I'm looking for. I may have lost a friend, but by tomorrow I would have recovered. I just can't, You cannot believe what you're seeing. But what... I mean, he... We're still talking about it 25 years later, so it's certainly memorable. Mike, what have you brought with you for round one of clips? Stuart Moss passed away today. We're doing this on Sunday. And... He's just one of those icons of sport and those icons of, of, of um, as a Brit. I mean, there's, there's, there's a few times when I, when I feel British more than Welsh, right? And, and when I see people like Daley Thompson and people like Sterling Moss, I feel very British. And uh, just watch this clip. Now, this is 10 years ago, and this is Sterling Moss talking about uh, motor racing and Grand Prix. He was 80 when he recorded this clip. He died today at 90, uh, a real... An absolute uh, hero of, of, of British sport, and this is a clip of him uh, a decade ago. I'm glad that I raced when it was dangerous, because the exhilaration of going round a really fast corner, 140, 150 miles an hour, and knowing that if you go off you might die, sure makes you feel pretty good when you get through it without dying. You know. <laughs> so there we go, I just love that. That sort of glamour of the 50s and the 60s. Um, I think the black and white always helps. When he talks about... Um, wave into opponents as he goes past, or when he remembers the shade of lipstick on the pretty girls at Monaco watching the Grand Prix. You know, and, and what really stuck with me in that interview, and you, and you listen to people like him um, and, and other 
um, model racers from that period and a little bit later. When he says he wouldn't want Grand Prix to be dangerous now, of course, he's not, he was not a psychopath, right? But he misses. He's glad he raced in a time when it was genuinely dangerous. Yeah. Right? And you've got to remember, it wasn't like there's a chance you get injured that season. You knew, looking around the paddock, that probably two or three of you would be dead before the end of the season. Yeah. So he talks, when you go around that bend at 170 miles an hour in a car with no seatbelt, no roll cage. <laughs> right? No seatbelt. You know, and he just said, he said he would, he was basically, he was terrified. Yeah. But when he came out of that, he said the feeling was amazing, that you basically cheated death. But this would be like six, seven, eight bends a lap for like 20, 30, 40 laps of a long season. And then he, and he did sport, and then he did, um, he did, he did rally driving as yeah. well. He, he, he just loved, he was a born, born racer, Sterling Moss. And just that embrace, when, when you see like extreme sportsmen these days, same sort of thing, I suppose, in sports women, just to embrace it. But and I remember Barry Sheen talking about the same thing and James Hunt talking about the same thing. You were mates, but you were like gladiators. You know, you knew for a fact, like I just said, that, that more than one of you were going to be dead. And you're young men in your 20s, young, good-looking, well-paid men with great lives. It wasn't like you had some shitty life you couldn't wait for it to be over. You had an amazing yeah. life, but it was going to be gone like that. So he never won the World Championship. He won a lot of races. He was fantastic. People say he may be the best... Formula One driver of all time, although he never said that about himself. Um, that he basic the one time he had, he had the real chance to win the world championship, he he took himself out of the running because there was a racer called Mike Hawthorne that he was friends with, right. who'd been disqualified in a previous race. Right, and if he'd have stayed disqualified, then Sterling Moss would have won the world championship. Sterling Moss spoke up in his tribunal in defence of him to get his Whoa. disqualification rescinded, and by doing that. He talked himself out of the World Championship. Wow. Wow. I love the fact that in this country, he is still uh, the go-to figure for driving fast. Absolutely. Like, slow down there, Linford, tends to be my go-to for someone running fast. I I tweeted it. I said, said, uh, to my kids who don't know who he is, he's just the bloke. When I say to Kelly, my wife, if she's driving a little bit too fast for the conditions. Yeah. Easy, Kelly. You're not Sterling Moss. Yeah. In the same, right. like, so my dad's been saying, "Who do you think you are, Sterling Moss?" Absolutely. For yeah. as long as I can remember. Now, yeah. this Sterling Moss retired over mm. fifty years ago. Yeah. You'd think it would be Nigel Mansell. Yeah. You'd think it would be Lewis, Lewis Hamilton. Hamilton yeah. Obviously, you'd think it could even be Damon Hill. But it's still Sterling Moss in the same way that if anyone takes a photograph, someone goes, who do you think you are, David Bailey? <laughs> yeah. Boom. Yeah. yeah. But he talks about people who are racers, right? And, and like, I love, I love motorcycle racing as well. And one thing I, lo- I love about motorcycle racing is there's not that communication between the pit and the bike. Yeah. They could do it. They've got the technology, yeah. but they don't do it. You hang the boards out there, but if Valentino Rossi or, or Marquez is, is riding a motorcycle... They're making the decision. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying Hamilton's not a fantastic driver. He obviously is, right? But he's also got a crew saying, save the tyres, come in in two laps, do this, slow down, speed up. You've got this much of a lead. And when Moss was doing it, that was just on you. You know, there was that was on you. So he talks about blokes who were just racers. And he said he, he, said he couldn't... He, he mentions about Schumacher, and it's interesting, it's before Schumacher had his big injury, when he said he was a racer. But then he, he took some time out of racing, and when he came back, he was a very good driver. But he thought he'd lost that. He wasn't a racer anymore. Yeah. Really when, you, when you're driving fast on the motorway, 
you get that thing in your stomach, don't you? Where you go, ooh, a bit too fast, and you ease off. Yeah. yeah. They either don't have that thing, or they found a way to switch it off. Or they love it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. They, th- when that happens... They I, embrace that. They embrace it and think, this is what I'm into it for. I'm right on the edge here. This, this could go spectacularly wrong. Yeah, I'm right on wow. it. Wow. They did a they did a test on on Schumacher when he was um, in his pomp. I think they rigged him up with some like heart rate monitors and things, just to look how he like Al was saying there when he, when he was going at the sort of speed that you, me, or LS would be absolutely losing control of our functions, right? And I think his heart rate was like seventy five beats per minute. You know, it was like he was sat down doing a Times crossword. <laughs> because he's just thinking about he's, he's he's too busy concentrating on the race and what he needs to do and. You know, and he's obviously enjoying it. But to have that sort of... We talk to racers who get pinged for um, speeding um, off-duty yeah. you know, when they're in their car. It must be like being a... You know, you can say when a fly sees everything 20 times slower than... Yeah. That's, where they, that's where you can never hit a fly with a newspaper. <laughs> if you're still in Moss, life off the track must seem like a snail's <clears throat> pace all the time. Yeah. There's a tendency these days... Uh, um, and I'm, I'm, without making too sweeping a generalisation, that you shouldn't like the fact that the sports are dangerous. You shouldn't like the fact that there is that in, you know that peril and that, and that risk to life and limb. But the fact is, a lot of people, myself included, I do like that. Right? Yeah. I, I, I like to see people push themselves to the absolute limit. I like to see big hits and fast races and, and, and you know, I don't want to see crashes and deaths, but I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say, I'll watch a boxing match and people try to... to just the way songs are saying, well, um, you know, take the head out of it. So we're just going to have the, we'll have the body shots. Yeah. And we'll count the body shots like Olympic style. With front. I don't want to see that. I want to see blokes punching each other in the head. I mean, that's why, that's why I watch boxing. Whether you think it's right or wrong, I think some people will try and deny that it is a part of the human condition, which Absolutely, you, yeah. and you can't deny that. You know, people, young young men in particular, will always look for danger, and there will always be an audience for people pushing themselves right my first clip for this week is one of my favorite basketball players of all time uh, this is magic johnson i've gone for uh the all-star game which in themselves are terrible affairs they're, they're, they're never worth watching they're never worth existing except for this one in 1992 um, he had tested positive for HIV in November of 91. This game took place in February of 92. Seeing some outstanding basketball being played. Magic Johnson! Oh, he is really sharp for someone who hasn't played at the competitive level. He's worked out considerably, but he's a rate. If it wasn't for Johnson's own story, the actual game is fantastic as well. So on the one side, you've got Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley. I think I'm right in saying Dennis Rodman's on the bench to start with Scottie Pippen. And then you've got the subtext of what Magic has been through. So he has tested positive for HIV. He hasn't played since then. And a lot of these guys don't want to be on the same court as him because the world isn't as well informed as perhaps we are now and a lot of them think they could catch HIV from playing basketball against him. Um, and then there is the moment before the game starts where he sort of high-fives his own team as he comes onto the court, stands down the far end 
And then it's uh, Isaiah Thomas, who is a mate of his, but is probably not the most popular member of the NBA at this time. He doesn't get into the dream team in the Olympics because he doesn't get on with Michael Jordan. But he's the first one who comes over from the East team and just gives Magic Johnson a huge hug. And it's just this wonderful, kind of life-affirming well, moment. the commentator says, well, he's been running four miles a day. And you think, that's not even the right training yeah. for basketball. No, it's a 6K. It's the right training for running four miles a day. <laughs> i tell you what about... Is I'm, not, I'm not a big NBA fan, even though I like American things, right? Mm. Um, but <laughs> those, those names you rattled off then, like, I, I know all those players. And when I was watching them come on, I thought, no, I know him. Yeah. I know who that is. I know who that is. I know who that is. There was like a real golden period. Maybe it was to do with the Olympics and the Dream Team as well. Yeah. But I knew, I knew all those players. And obviously Magic Johnson is one of those figures who transcends his sport. And just If you think about how little we knew at that time, right? Yes. I remember growing up, you know, in the eighties and, and the late, when the, the government things about AIDS came on TV, yeah. I thought, shit, everyone's going to die from AIDS. Yeah, we're, we're all going to die from AIDS. You know, and no one knew how it was originally how it was spread and everything else. Even though there was a bit of an understanding at that point of how HIV was passed around, there were still a lot of theories out there, a lot of crackpots and a lot of weirdos. You know, so you know, and you're you're playing a game where you're going to sweat and there's going to be contact yes. and there's going to be bodily fluids and there's going to be you know. So I thought fair play to the players and that in. in that must have done a massive amount for everyone else with HIV in the world, I think. That, that, that game must have changed attitudes all over the place. Yeah, and he became an activist for uh, people in America on low incomes who, who were HIV sufferers and who had AIDS. And the thing with Magic Johnson as well is November 91, that's when Freddie Mercury died. And yes. If you look oh, yeah, course, at how... The British tabloid press wrote about Freddie Mercury and um, his condition. Yeah, it would nowadays be classed as a hate crime. Mm, it was absolutely. a very, very misunderstood mm. illness. That and you know that that government information campaign in the UK was was you know incredibly successful and also is still being you know we're proving it, it's still being talked about thirty years on. But in the early 90s, I knew who he was, despite knowing nothing about NBA. I yeah. think it was him and Michael Jordan. Yeah. Jordan, obviously, because of the trainers, yeah. to a large extent as well. But they completely transcended sport to the extent that they were household names in the UK, even though that basketball yeah. is a real still a minority sport. In, and yet I still, you know, I, I still liked it. Everybody played in school. Yes. Like everyone I played basketball, everyone I know played basketball. But it's one of those sports that you get to start at 16, everyone stops playing basketball. Yeah, I often wonder... That's because I'm a probably middle-class white bloke living in Wales. <laughs> You're also not six foot nine. I've, yeah. I've been in the hood in Clan Vyvechen. <laughs> this is a paid advert from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now, we all carry around lots of different sort of stress moments whether it's like big or small it could be as huge as how am I going to pay the mortgage this month or you know I'm I'm ill but I don't really want to talk to anybody about that because I don't want to make them feel stressed about it as well or you know it could be just as, something as small as how am I going to get to school pick up in time I've got a meeting how do I change that how do I move that I forgot to cancel that Lots of the time we keep it bottled up, and whether it's big or small, it can really start to affect us negatively. And 
therapy is kind of a safe space to get those things off your chest. So whether it's like coming up with plans to to organize your life a little bit better or whether it's just having someone to talk to about those things you don't want to stress out your mates or your family with. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable and entirely online. You will be matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and you can switch therapists at any time. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash distant. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash distant. Right, you guys have had your choices of documentary, so it's my go this week. Um, And selfishly, I've gone for an entire series. This is The Test, and it is about the Australian cricket team. It's kind of the... 18-month period from when Steve Smith and David Warner get done for using sandpaper to manipulate a ball during the Test match out in South Africa. Build a team, right? going to build a team out of you blokes. going to keep learning every game we play. You're away from home. Things are uncomfortable. We've lost. If I'm being honest, I feel shit at us right now. We can't be fat and we can't be not aggressive. What do you reckon about the team? I don't reckon we're really 100% set on our batting lineup yet. That's just the truth. We've seen this an Australian team that's prepared to roll up their sleeves, have a crack in any situation. That's going to be the way we're going to win our fans back. I've seen a lot of behind-the-scenes docs, a lot of the ones that you've been talking about, Al, to do with football from the early days when people were kind of naive to the camera being there. Um, and I've worked on quite a lot as well. And people know you're there because you're the dude with the camera sat in the corner of the room. You can be in a boxing dressing room minutes before someone goes in for a world title fight and you can be as inobtrusive as you like, but you're still the bloke with a massive camera sat in the corner of the room. And yet this Australian team seem not quite relaxed, but they seem all right with that. And they seem all right with, it's not quite warts and all, but it's, it's pretty close to it. It's, it's as close to it as I've seen in a documentary series. I've discovered my next obsession, I think, because I've only watched the first episode. I watched it last night. Yeah. And I could not believe what I was seeing. Yeah. I think it's one of the best sporting documentaries I've seen for a long time. And I'm this week I binge-watched Sunderland Till I Die. Yes. And <laughs> as behind the scenes and as flying the wall as it is, it is still stage-managed yeah. to an extent. There's a bit where one of the players, I can't remember who it is, um, I think it might be Jack Rodwell, actually. He's deciding whether he's going to stay at the club or not. And he calls his agent. He says, this is a personal call. And they turn the cameras off. Yeah. And that's all, it. All, and all of it made in Chelsea, isn't it? Yeah. The footage, the behind-the-scenes footage they, they've got hold of on this documentary. You know, they've just been absolutely stuffed by England in a one-day international. And it shows... Langer giving the entire team a dressing down. Yeah. Seconds after they're they're in off the pitch, off you know, it, 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 I just think it's incredible. And also, the thing with the Australian cricket team is that it does sum up a vision of Australianness or the way they want to see themselves, the way they want to portray themselves yeah. to the world in a way that, to an extent, I think Aussie rules used to, because I I did a tour of Australia about 10 years ago and there was a scandal in Aussie rules and I remember talking to someone and she said that they used to be people that the whole country looked up to and after this scandal I'm, I'm not sure that's the case anymore but they still think that way about the um, about the Australian cricket team so obviously the ball tampering 
scandal is such a such a huge issue. Yeah. The, the prime minister got involved. Yeah, that's nuts. Well, I sent I sent Steph a message after I I watched the first two. I watched I watched them today back to back. The first two episodes. One of the I don't know. If we say this every week, but honestly, now that is one of the best docs. I, I literally can't wait to see the restaurant. Like the first two were, fa- were fantastic, and like you said there, El, like with Justin Langer, obviously he played at the, played at the top level. He's such a quiet man, such a well-spoken man, and when he takes over the team, I mean, and I'm a sucker for this sort of thing anyway. Doesn't go into a lot of tactics or a lot of a lot of um, you know. He says the first thing we've got to do is make Australia proud of us again. He talks about you know Tim Payne talks about when, when you made Australian cricket captain. He said you're basically the second most important person in Australia after the Prime Minister, yeah. right? It's, it's sort of that big. And he wanted to instill this pride in, in them being Australians and representing the country again and, and play and be humble. And, and, you know, I love that in sport. I, I, I can't stand... There's cockiness and there's being a cock, right? I can't stand people who are a cock in yeah. sport, right? Do you know what I mean? Yes. The yeah. bit when he takes them on their first... They're going to England and, and they stop off on the way. They go to the Western Front. Yes. To look at all the Anzac graves there and say what, what are these and he's not trying to draw parallels and saying that you know we're as important as, as you know the thousands of young lads who died there, but he's just saying, listen, th- these are Australians. This is part of our this is part of our of our national history, and remember that we're representing this country, right? Be proud of this. But then where it really bites you in the bum as a doc, well, I and I love cricket, but I'd sort of forgotten that because I was so carried away with the World Cup. Yeah. I'd sort of forgotten the tour before yeah. that. Yeah, and like you said, they got smashed. Yes. Well, they, they got beaten five nil in the one series. Yeah, yeah. You know, they were getting tonked, and then after the game, the cameras are there talking to Langer, talking to Tim Payne, talking to people right after the. Oh, for Christ, yeah, I can't believe what I was seeing. It. The Australian cricket board aren't naive. No. So the amount of coverage, the amount of access mm. they get, I don't know how that happened in 2018 because you'd think that. In the modern era, it just wouldn't be possible to make this kind of documentary. They were so low, though, weren't they? They were so low. They had literally no... After that ball tampering, when you watch... It's heartbreaking. Like I said, the worst thing about... We talked about this briefly earlier. The worst thing about the doc for me is I hate loving Australia. Yeah. Right? I'm loving Aussies watching this. I'm loving... Yeah, yeah. They were so low, like Steph said then, right? After the ball tampering, it was all... It was huge over there. And when you see... When you saw... um, What's his name? Steve Smith. Yes. Crying yeah. like a crying like a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted yeah, to yeah. just give him a cutch. I, I felt so bad for him. So I think that when they must have approached the Australian cricket board, they went, "Well, we can only go up." Well, Steve Smith goes back into the squad, and they ask Justin Langer in one of the set piece interviews, "What's he like?" And he just went, "He's weird, mate. He's really weird." And this is like, <laughs> this is your former captain coming back in, absolute hero. He just went, "Yeah, he's just a really strange man, if I'm honest." I, I, yeah, I yeah. love that level of honesty. And then the Headingley test, which I know was kind of back on the telly yesterday, the whole Ben Stokes innings where he wins it from nowhere. Watching that, watching <clears throat> Justin Langer watch that is one of the most fantastic pieces of telly you will ever see because they win that, they draw the, they, they, they retain the ashes and they need to get one wicket. And they've got Jack Leach in there and he cannot bat. And yet they can't keep him on strike because Tim Payne keeps messing it up. And so he's slagging off his captain, saying, what's his field position here? And then there's a moment where the ball comes into Nathan Lyons and there's a chance of a stumping, uh, of a a run out, rather. Oh, super. And it cuts to Langer 
and he kicks over the bin in the back of the box. And even as he's done it, because he's this mild-mannered, quite zen guy, it all kind of cascades down the stairs. And the bin hasn't hit the ground before he starts picking up every single piece of litter that's fallen yeah, out of yeah, that yeah. bin. He starts putting it back in one by one. Still really annoyed, but aware that that's not what I should have done. Right, that's on Amazon Prime. It's called The Test. Uh, if you sign up for Amazon while you're stuck indoors, you get 30 free days with it, and then you can do what you like. You can Watch it. pile through the documentaries, or you can cancel it as soon as you want to. Your choice. <laughs> <laughs> Right, second round of clips for this week. Uh, Mike, you're first up with this one because your clips for this week are as, as, as polar opposites as you can get. Well, I'll let this clip speak for itself. Um, to say that I was obsessed with this documentary about Paul Sykes when it came out, and I have been obsessed with it for probably 30 years, <laughs> is, is an understatement. And Ellis, Ellis knows this firsthand. Um, I, it's It's... I know we're a sports podcast, mm. but I'm putting this in there because he was uh, he was a boxer. He boxed, he boxed briefly professionally. Um, I think I think this is genuinely one of the best monologues of ninety <laughs> seconds or less, right? That I've ever heard in my life. And well, just watch this, and then, then, we'll, then we'll have a chat. I'm a wonderful citizen. How do you think I've got this house and where I'm living now? If I wasn't, they've given me this council. We've got the best. This is the best little city on on earth. How do I know? I've been everywhere else. I'm here now, right on the family patch. Yeah, I know where it is. I've been. I've been. Nobody can tell me anything. I don't read Daily Mirror, son. I go and have a look. I go and have a look, and I've been. I've lived in the forests of North America. I've lived in the outback of the Ivory Coast. I've lived in India and Russia. I had my breakfast in Moscow, and my tea in Wood Street, Nick. Yeah, I've been about a bit. I'm the only man in the history of mankind that has swum across the Straits of Johor. I had to avoid a police launch. It was either that or Changinik. They've got me passport in Singapore. Yeah, I swam it. Yeah, nobody's ever done it before. Not because of the currents or anything like that. Nothing like that. It's sharks. Not shark infested, but none of the locals go paddling. Yeah, I swam it. This is- I know about sharks. I know about sharks. Yeah, I'm six foot three and sixteen stone, two hundred weight. Yeah, I'm swimming. Uh, I mean, that These is pumps, to me that's as good as it gets. <laughs> that is as good. Oh, I wrote a thing a while back, probably when I just started doing comedy. Right. And I wanted to write this this real um, this real nutcase. And I I actually asked Alice because we I just started doing comedy. And I met Alice and got on. I asked Al to play this lunatic that I based wholly on Paul Sykes. <laughs> and I've got to say, Alice did a fantastic job of it. But, it, but it, I think that bit, when he's not a shark infested. Yeah. <laughs> right? I just, it's so good. And that, that whole, if you get a chance, uh, I, think, I think it's in like six parts on YouTube. Yeah. Right? You can, they haven't got the whole thing there, but you can find all the parts together. Watch that, because I mean, quite a tragic story in the end, obviously, right? I mean, he had a lot of alcohol and drug issues and, um, Paul Sykes. He fought for a Commonwealth under British title. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Was, he, was he that? Yeah. He, oh, okay. I didn't realise. I knew he had a few fights. He used to spar with a Welsh guy from Newport called David Price, who was oh, yeah, British yeah. champion. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he, he used to be one of his sparring part. I think he said that Price was sort of the toughest guy he'd ever sparred with, but I think that's 
that that sort of he was a really decent level. Paul Sykes was also basically Britain's most notorious inmate yes. for a long time. You know, he was infamous, and then obviously became famous because of this documentary. <laughs> there's a bit there with this old man who's a, who's a prison guard, right? Uh, and it, obviously, a lot of it stems from that relationship with his dad. Whether well being too much of an amateur psychologist, but he goes, he said, I, "I'll paraphrase it because I haven't seen this. I haven't seen it for for a few months." He goes, "My dad's a bastard, <laughs> but I'm the only one that can call him that." Right? I just think that is sweet as, and then his mum's his mum looks like she's been drawn by the people who draw Viz. Right? <laughs> you, you, you see his his mum chat, and she's she's a great character herself. Right? And the, the there's, it was maybe an hour long on BBC Two, probably in the, in, the, in the mid or late 80s. And it's one of those things. There was that and there was a documentary called John's Not Mad. And they were the two oh, docs. Yeah, yeah. Anyone my age remembers those two docs. But the one with, Paul, that one with Paul Sykes, there's a bit there when he gets married and he asks a mate of his from prison who's now come out on his reformed character and, he, and he's become a, he's taken his... Uh, Done his whatever you call vicar training, right? He's done his vicar GCSE, and he's now he's now a vicar, right? So he's doing the ceremony in Paul's front room, and then Paul it becomes incandescent with the bloke because he mentions God. <laughs> he just God's got nothing to do with it, right? If I want to, no, no book can tell me what to do. You're like, wait, wait, he's a vicar. You've asked him to come to your house as a vicar, right? He's just, and he runs. If you watch, if you watch the top. He ends up running a like a running club for kids in the area, <laughs> and, and he goes, "I want you to bring your kids to me, and I'll look after them for you." I thought, "My God, imagine like <laughs> dropping your kids off at Paul Sykes for the afternoon." That bit though, where he's talking about swimming, yes, you know, yeah. uh, because uh, with his trainers tied round his neck. I'm six foot three, <laughs> two hundred fourteen weight. stone, two hundred weight. He, yeah. he, dum, he dum, how can dum, I put dum, it? Dum. He warms to his theme. As the story oh, becomes more and more elaborate, and as someone with a, yeah, well, a five-year-old as, as <laughs> five daughter, it is so reminiscent of when a five-year-old riffs to get out of trouble. <laughs> There's a really fantastic Whoa. Richard Pryor routine where he talks about the lies his kids tell yeah, to get yeah, out of yeah, trouble, yeah. and they, they they spiral and they make less and less sense. And that is him. But because he's so scary, you have to believe him. So, he's one of those blokes, and we, and we all know someone like it, right? And I think Robert Carlyle, like Begbie, when he plays Begbie, someone who's an absolute hair trigger. Yeah, I, yeah, know, yeah. I know a few sports people, I'm not going to name names, right? But I'll, I'll text you later and you'll know what I mean anyway, right? But I think I know they, who you're going to say. They would be great company, and they'd be great yeah. to have a beer with, but you would know that at any second they could break your jaw, right? And, and um, Stefan has absolutely smashed it. Yes, yes. Say. We're on Zoom. We're on Zoom, and <laughs> Stefan knows exactly what I'm talking about. Steph's just written on a pad of paper, and that was my guess. And it's been confirmed. That is the person. Yes. yes. But yeah, and you and uh, and if they when they walk into the pub, you used to think, okay, he's here, so I need to. I need, oh, I, I, I'll probably slow down. I probably won't drink as much because yeah. if I say something fairly innocuous. I could be, he's going to push me up against wall and I have to defend myself for saying something that I, I think is fairly run-of-the-mill. And that is how I imagine Paul Sykes was. A real laugh, my God, if he if he went. But this, it's like when he watched like Oliver Reed or any of those great bloody um, Hellraisers, yeah. you know, from, from, from the classic. I would love a night, I mean, talk about Sterling Moss embracing it. Mm. Bloody hell, I would have loved the night out with Paul Sykes in the, in the 80s. <laughs> I would have loved it. 
And then if I'd survived it, I'd have thought, what, what a roller coaster. It would have been. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, Alice, your choice uh, for round number two is, again, what, just wonderful to watch. This is a clip from an Aston Villa video from 1995-1996. And is, it is the Villa team who, if you're, you know, if you're around then, you would still recognise a lot of the players. Tommy Johnson, Gareth Southgate, Paul McGrath, of course, Steve Staunton. Lot Nigel Spink who'd won a European Cup with Villa in eighty two. They're all discussing their favourite foods and their favourite drinks. Favourite food's gotta be um, chicken and pasta. Italian football is something that, you know, with the pasta and, and being a footballer, you have to eat that pasta thing <laughs> that you get used to. Uh, but I enjoy Italian as well, but if I have a choice I'll um, I'll have Chinese every day of the week if I could. Maybe have a pizza or something that would be on a Sunday where I let my body sort of recuperate and to rest and to sort of change the system around but for the six days a week um, or even seven days a week I mean I'll have a like I said a, a low fat pizza or something like that or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday but for the majority part of the week uh, it's more of a necessity. Uh, I like Italian food and uh, that'd be my first probably Chinese second. Chinese the favorite food pasta burgers and chips. Now this is around the time of the Arsene Wenger revolution and I think a lot of fans especially younger fans when you hear players saying and Wenger made Tony Adams eat broccoli, they think that's a joke. Yes. They think that well surely as professional athletes <laughs> they were eating broccoli anyway. Oh. Now I cannot I cannot I cannot emphasise enough how much of a cultural sea change that was in British football. And this clip is all the evidence you need. So, uh, the, 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 the drinks. Southgate is the only one who says water. Yes. So, if it's not alcoholic, it's Ribena or lemonade. <laughs> they're, they're athletes. Or Coke. Mark Bosnich, because his body is a temple, spends the week eating low-fat pizzas. What the hell are they? Low-fat pizzas. You've got... It's got cheese on it. That's entirely Andy Andy Townsend saying, I'm too old to eat modern health foods like pasta. Come on, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Brought back from China by Marco Polo 2,000 years ago. Playing in the Premier League. But the, the Premier League. The, the, the Bosnich bit where he goes, and on a Sunday, I might have milk and biscuits. Yeah. <laughs> 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 like he's a three-year-old. my <laughs> 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 body recharge. I cannot, I cannot, I just cannot believe footballers were all doing that. Like he talks to someone like them. Um, Ian Stone, who's a stand-up comic, Mike will know him, who does a brilliant uh, Arsenal podcast and is now quite a recognised Arsenal fan. I mean, Stoney's of an age where that really brilliant Arsenal team, especially the George Graham side, they they won the league in 91. I think they only conceded 18 goals. What a team. They would finish by 4.45. They'd have a shower. Well, that's where the Tuesday club comes from. It was an all-dayer that you had to go on. An all-dayer that you had to go on. You have to go. To go. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, they were all in the Arsenal Tavern by six o'clock. They were all hammered by eleven p.m. Mm. You can't tell me that football was wasn't as good or as entertaining, and certainly that the, there wasn't a real connection with the fans like there was when blokes were going out and having a drink and eating pizzas and fish oh, and chips and bloody, you know what I mean? Far, far more of a connection with the supporters. Absolutely, I think. Every now, I'm you know Troy Deeney, for mm. example. I think is someone who, when you look at his background and the way he speaks, is fairly representative of normal supporters. Yeah. And then I read a long interview with him a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about how now all of his meals are managed for him, and he has a chef, and he's got into bone broth and all this kind of stuff and different (laughs) supplements. You know, you 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 know Harry Kane is a chef. All the top players have chefs. Do you know but, what though, well, right? right yeah, I mean, I'll use a football reference, and it's Wales. You like this, right? I was watching that. Um, uh, what's it, Cliff Jones, the other day? Yes. Doing, doing his, oh, yeah, his, yeah. his isolation workout. Yes. Uh, amazing. He's eighty-five. Oh, mate, he's doing proper, proper burpees. Like t- he does, like ten burpees, and then he's just talking to the camera like it's nothing. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, I, I would be, I would be knackered after ten burpees now. Yeah. Right? Um, he's still in great shape. You got a lot of these extra. I think. If you're a bodybuilder and you need to show every striation and every muscle and everything else, yeah. right, I can understand where you've got that strict, strict diet, right? Yeah. If you're a jockey who's got to make a weight or a motor racing driver who's got to make a weight or a boxer that's got to make a weight, that's fair enough. If you're a sportsman, if you want to train your bollocks off, right, and train hard and, and be really skillful, have a drink, have a pizza, have, have a burger. It doesn't doesn't make a difference carrying that bit of extra poundage. Right? I'm not just saying that because I'm a fat bloke, right? I just... <laughs> I generally believe that. I remember that the Aussie rugby league team came over about twenty years ago, and there was a thing in the paper about how much beer they drank because they would drink, they would drink gallons of beer all the time, and they're saying because and there's a lot of bullshit came up that it dehydrates you because it's got alcohol in it. That's bollocks. I mean, it it might slightly dehydrate you know, but you're taking in like five liters of fluid. It, it doesn't it doesn't dehydrate you five liters of body. Well, fluid, Arsene right? Wenger could not believe the culture of. The drinking culture of British Because also, they, they always mention on the news about well, fucking politicians tell them like, you know, we need to develop a, a continental drinking culture. Why? We've got a fucking British drinking culture. That's what <laughs> we, we do it this way. Thank you very much. Right? If you come from here from France, get them oh. in and shut up. Because that's not the way we do things. But also, <laughs> the thing with Wenger is, he would say, right then, um, when, Tony, when, when, Wenger, when Tony Adams. Would you like to go with him or George Green for a night out? When Tony Adams famously, when Tony Adams famously admitted to the squad that he was an alcoholic, yeah, and he burst into tears, hmm. and the first one to say anything was Merson, who said, "Well, if you're an alcoholic, what does that make me?" And the entire squad all looked at each other because yeah. they were all they were all drinking far too heavily. Yeah. And the same at United as well. That was one of the things Ferguson had as to a postscript. Because... He is an alcoholic. Yes, yes, yeah, but yeah, as it turns out, what's that like me? An alcoholic. But, but, with, but, but Ferguson had to do the same at United. He to, so he kept a few of the big drinkers. Hughes was a big drinker. Robson was a big drinker. But McGrath, McGrath was there, the others, yeah, and yeah. Whiteside, he moved on. Now. Wenger just could not believe what he was seeing. Well, so, he's Frenchman. They don't but he, like that. But he would say stuff like, he would say, listen, guys, he would say, if you've got to do something bad to your body, I would prefer it if you smoked. <laughs> because <laughs> you're just... And like, like Paolo Di Canio was one of the first really brilliant foreign imports into the Premier League in the mid-90s. Uh, I saw an interview with him once where Neil Ruddock would, have, would come into training 
I'd say, oh, I'm a bit hungover. I had 14 pints yesterday. <laughs> and Pamela Ducani would say, why? <laughs> yeah, we're, also a we're, we're, we're playing Spurs on Saturday. Yeah, it's a really big right. game. And <laughs> I think it is easy for young, younger football I'm not, fans... I'm not glorifying not to re- alcoholism. I'm not saying being alcoholic. I'm just saying there's so much put into now, into diet and, and micromanaging grams of carbs and protein and this. And for football, I'm saying it's not important. But also, if you want to win, if, ever, if, if anyone is doing that, they will win. That was an enormous advantage Arsenal had. The fact that they were they were fitter. And also, if... You know, if you retain that British drinking culture in 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 the UK, the, the British teams would get absolutely stuffed by the Italians and the Spanish because the, the, the top players don't drink. You know, Bale is teetotal. Oh wow! You know, but it would be more fun. But we'd get hammered. Is, I don't think we'd get in, hammered. Well, do you know? What? I, I, think I remember talking. To, I remember talking to Charlie Faulkner, old British lion and and Wales prop years ago, right? And he was saying that I think they were over in Japan in like seventy one or seventy two, and they got tested before before sports testing was done. They got tested for cardio, fitness, and VO two max and all this other stuff, right? And in, and him telling me this was all right. This was twenty years ago, but that those the sort of results they achieved had never been bettered by a Welsh team since, right? And those blokes were steel workers and coal miners and, and they had manual jobs and some of them had office jobs but they trained their tits off you, you listen to the boys talking about Pooler Park in the old days running up and down mountains and you know they trained and trained and trained and worked hard as well right and then they liked to have a drink and a pie and chips and a flipping pasty whatever they want to do right so what I'm saying is I don't think it's the case that Italian teams would beat us because they're having broccoli if we were having pie and chips I, I think that's, I think that's I, bollocks I, I just think that Science would probably prove you wrong. Science, right. mate. I did a, I did a science. sports degree. Come around here with science. science. Fucking science. It's, it's not the Tour de France. <laughs> I, I was thinking about the Tour de France. They're working out the wattage needed to go through a certain stage. Yeah. So how many calories you need to take in. And football's not like that. Look at Jan Mulby. What a wonderful midfield general, right? If you're the kind... Living off prison kind of, food with a beer belt. If you play the kind Magic. of... Magic. If you play the kind of football... Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool play. You've got right. to be fit to maintain that. that you can be fit and drink out, is what I'm saying. Could, could Trent Alexander-Arnold run up and down that flank having had eight pints every night of Grolsch? Of Grolsch yes. and only Chinese food. I also yes. think it would affect your training as well. You can't retrain You can overtrain, over. mate. You can overtrain. I you can also have to Yeah. I think we'll have to agree to disagree on this one. I'm not saying I'm not saying being alcoholic, I'm not saying I have a Chinese fight seven days a week, right? I'm just saying when you see blokes, Premier League footballers, getting papped by some prick with a phone for having a pint on a Wednesday, that's not a big deal. There is no way I I I refuse to accept that Jordan Henderson isn't fitter than Jan Mulby. Would you rather get a pass off Jan Mulby or John Henderson? Okay. Exactly. I'd love you're, it you're, if Jan Your Mulby... silence speaks volumes up. <laughs> I'm going to say the beers are kicking in. I've got to tone it down a bit now. Sorry. Right. I'm going to write, George. <laughs> you're, you're... <laughs> I'm going opposite end of the sporting spectrum uh, for choice number two. For me, this is Serena Williams at the 2012 Olympic Games. Gold medal points. Gold medal point in just a little over an hour. 
began with three aces, finished with aces, gold medal to Serena Williams over Maria Sharapova, six love, six one. And that is... This is kind of a weird choice for Serena Williams because you go, okay, Olympics, that's not really a huge deal in the world of tennis. But for her, it was a huge deal. So the approach that she had to the 2012 Olympics was, I need to win this to be as good, in her own mind, as Steffi Graf, Andre Agassi, the, the guys who'd won the Olympic gold and the four Grand Slam titles. I think she'd won all four of the Grand Slams by 2003, but the Olympics, for whatever reason, I think there was an injury in 04, uh, quarterfinals in 2008. It just hadn't happened for her. And this was kind of, it wasn't her last chance because she went to Rio as well, but that didn't go away. So this one was just just a demolition of everyone who she faced. So it was at Wimbledon on the grass there. She played six matches. She only dropped 17 games in the entire tournament. That's ludicrous. And she's a sports person who just gets, not overlooked, but people will mention male tennis players before they mention Serena Williams. And she is way ahead of everyone else in her era. The thing with Serena is, I when, growing up, I caught the tail end of Navratilova's dominance, yes. and then Steffi Graf. Mm-hmm. And I think it is quite easy to think when you're in the period, especially if it's when you're discovering sport in general. If you're growing up, if your formative years have a really dominant player, you, it's I think it's easy to think, well, we'll never see the likes of her again. Yeah. But Serena, and, and also her sister, what a set of genetics that family have, yes. by the way. 12 Wimbledon titles between them. They're the top two um, uh, earning tennis players of all time. Yeah. Two sisters. I mean, it, it's extraordinary. It's, it's the v- Venus and Serena rage. It's just that story, mate, as well, of how they were sort of, you know, blue-collar, West Coast, you know, not, not the sort of... Um, there's a real sort of snobbery, whether it's whether it's deserved or not these days, but there certainly was a real snobbery with tennis. Um, for them to come into that, and for their dad to think, you know, uh, to to have an understanding of what you know, you're you're a black woman in America. Yeah, there's going to be a glass ceiling at some point, which is obviously wrong and, and bang out of order. But to think that how can my daughters achieve greatness, right? And that obviously, I, I think he he was. Um, Quite a strict coach, you listen to it. But, for, yeah, like you said, for two sisters to dominate a sport like that was, was remarkable. She also, Serena, won the Australian Open when she was eight weeks pregnant. Yes. She didn't, did she? Yeah. She did. Oh, God. That is just mind-boggling. It is absolutely mind-boggling. She put a thing on Instagram to say that she, to announce that she was 20 weeks pregnant and then everyone did the maths and realised she'd won the Australian Open when she was eight weeks pregnant. It was oh just insane. And the first trimester, as well as when you're at your most tired, the idea of playing tennis in the first trimester is just... I just can't get my... And also, do you know what? I mean, I'm not a huge tennis fan. You'd be surprised to hear this, but I, I much prefer tennis in the sort of early 80s, mid-80s. Yeah. But I think modern tennis, modern rackets, the way it's played, I'd, I'd much rather watch women's tennis than men's tennis. 
Yeah. I just think it's more entertaining. I think I think the skill levels are higher. It's not all about one massive big serve. Okay. It's, it's, I um, think I don't, it's I a better know. game to watch. I think Sampras era. I would agree with you. I think well, Rosetsky is a good example of that. Yeah, who was, I think that know, era player. I didn't like at all. I think the era before it, Becker, Edberg, brilliant. I like the sort of four guy dominance that there is, has been. Nadal and yeah, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, Djokovic and Murray. Mm. I've kind of I've enjoyed. I've got back into tennis. Do you know what? Years, years an aside, I'm trying to think of another sport where you have a second chance. We we. Where you can try and hit it as hard as you can, right? But if you miss it, because you've, you've, gone, you've gone for it too much, you'll say, oh, don't worry about it, have another go. Right? It doesn't happen in... Imagine taking a... Really trying to blast a penalty, really not do a proper Roy of the Rovers. Yeah. And because you've tried to hit it too hard, it's gone over the crossbar, the refs can't have another go, go on. Or wow. golf. You know, you've got to try and drive a par four to get an eagle. So you're really lashing it. You yeah. put it out of bounds and you go... And the, the, the marshal goes, go on, have another one. That's have interesting. One. That's a very, very good... Well, off the top of my head in football, when I think of retaken free kicks, I think of Gareth Bale's one against Andorra, which he scored and rescued Wales' qualification. I think of the Koeman one against England in 93, which obviously is retaken and then he scores and it scuppers England's chances because by then you've, you've given two fantastic free kick takers a chance to get their eye in. Yeah. If footballers were all get, were given two attempts at a you free kick... You imagine saying at a penalty, right, you have two goes with this. Yeah, yeah. The first one, you're going to absolutely lash it. Yeah. Or try something outrageous. Because, you know, if that misses, I'll just go from a normal penalty. There will, be, there will be some obscure... There will be someone sub, cleverer sub, than I us. I think I've revolutionised the sport that's played in two Tasmania. Point, two points in, I've revolutionised Two points in, you're the second Welshman. <laughs> Did you know there was a guy called Mike Davis who brought in... He's in the Tennis second, Hall of Fame. Brought in the second serve, did he? No, no, he did. No, no. He, he brought in the tie-break. <laughs> oh, did he? For TV purposes. And he what brought. Can I bring in this? He brought in the yellow balls because they couldn't see the white balls on TV. Well, I'm obviously the heir apparent of Mike Davis. There you go. Two Welshmen revolutionising tennis. Right, book choices for this week, gentlemen. Let's go, Mike. First of all, what have you got for us? Right, this is, I love this. I bought this book in uh, Hey On Why Book Festival a while back, probably 10 years ago now. I was just, there's, a, there's obviously loads of brilliant old bookstores. They're all second-hand bookstores. And um, I found this uh, Green Bay Diary by Jerry Kramer, who played, um, he, he was, he played 64, he played guard for the Packers in, in the glory days of the 60s. And just really, really interesting to read um, a 60s sportsman's um, account of, of, of that year and it was the year leading up to Super Bowl 1 um, and the Packers in the 60s probably the best team that ever played football so they, they won 6 championships in, in 10 years coached by Vince Lombardi we talk about people who, who are bigger than their sport right? I think every sort of football manager every coach, everyone involved in coaching sport will, will know a little bit about Vince Lombardi at least Um just an amazing coach. So it's really interesting to listen to Jerry Kramer talking about that year with Lombardi leading up to Super Bowl one. Um, and as a little aside to it, Jerry Kramer got in the Hall of Fame, I think it was last year or year before, but there'd been a sort of 40-plus year campaign to try and get Jerry Kramer into the Hall of Fame, um, led by his daughter. And the theory, one of the theories why he wasn't in the Hall of Fame was that Packers team was so good and Lombardi was so brilliant 
the Lombardi was in the Hall of Fame, and I think 11 or 12 packets from that team were already in the Hall of Fame, which is, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's unrivaled. But they said that the, the one of the schools of thought was that because Lombardi was so good, the players didn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame because they because he would have put anybody in the Hall of Fame because he was such a tactician, right. which is obviously, I mean... But but he's in there now, Jerry Kramer. But, um, and the other theory was that because he'd written this this diary, and it's not warts and all by by a long stretch of the imagination, but it's but it's quite a, a, a real um, account of what it was like that that he'd upset people in the NFL, and there was like this unwritten um, agreement that he would never be in the Hall of Fame. But you think of the NFL now, and, and boys who are making twenty, thirty, forty million dollars a year. I know Al's the same with with football, right? Um, in those days, boys all had a job. I mean, this was and this wasn't ancient history. This is this is fifty years ago. So unless you were the quarterback, you know, you'd be on the big big bucks. People like Jerry Kramer, even though they, they were world they were world champions in the American version, which is they were Super Bowl champions. Um, players were just seen as commodities in, in the team, and and they weren't making the sort of life changing money they make now. There's a great story about um, the Packers had a fantastic player called Jim Taylor. Now, Vince Lombardi had a, had a policy of never talking to agents. He didn't believe in agents. He thought agents ruined football. Okay. He was, he was a very strict Catholic. He went to Mass every day. Um, very religious man. He thought that money, and especially agents, were ruining the sport that he loved. And he played it, you know, he was a very good player as a younger man. So he had a no agents rule. And now, after they won the Super Bowl, uh, I think Jimmy Taylor was due a new contract. His contract was up. So he turns up. Now, they... Uh, he was their star running back. He turns up at his meeting to talk about his new contract with an agent. So Vince Lombardi walks out. It wasn't the general manager. It was him. He did all this himself. Lombardi walks into the, into the waiting room there and says, Jimmy, he says, oh, I'm not going to talk to you, Mr. Lombardi. He says, I, um, this, is my, this is my agent. You know, he, he's going to negotiate on my behalf. So Lombardi says, just wait there for a second. Goes back in his room. So Jim Taylor sort of sits there. Super Bowl winning star running back. He said five minutes later, Lombardi walks out in the change room. Jim, Jimmy Taylor, they got to stand up. And uh, he says to the agent, if you want to talk about Jim's contract, you need to speak to the New Orleans Saints because he no longer plays for the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> and he'd gone in and traded him. He'd gone into the room, wow. picked up the telephone and got rid of him. Wow. Okay, Alice, what's your book, mate? Well, the book I have chosen... Um, is Those Feet, An Intimate History of English Football by David Winner. Now, football in particular, more than any sport, I think, is well catered for when it comes to histories. There's a cracking book called The Ball is Round, A Global History yeah. of Football by David Goldblatt, which is just shy of a thousand pages long and it's pretty, it's pretty academic, but it's, it's, you know, if it's not in that book, it's, it's not worth knowing. But the this book, Those Feet by David Winner, is much more readable, much shorter, very entertaining, and is also, I'm going to read it out to you, is, is, contains my probably my favourite football anecdote of all time, which I think is right up um, Mike Bubbins's street. So here we go. This is talking about how tough players had to be um, in, in, in the old days in comparison with now. Strength and the ability to withstand punishment was still more essential when football was even tougher in the 1920s and 1930s. 
Dixie Dean of Everton, statistically the greatest goal scorer in the history of the English game, lost a testicle at the age of 17 oh, when dear. playing for Tranmere in a reserve match. Dean had angered the opposing centre-half, won David Parks, by scoring twice. <laughs> As Dean passed him going oh. down the field, the two bantered. Parks, bantered. I'll, get no, more. <laughs> I'll oh. get no more bloody goals today, you finished. Dean, by the looks of you, you've finished, you've had it. Next time Dean got too near Parks, the defender kicked him with full force in the groin. In hospital, Dean was strapped to a table while his balls swelled. Shut up. And then was given gas while surgeons removed the damaged oh, organ. Oh. Now get this, right? Oh, After five weeks, he was back on the field. <laughs> and the injury didn't affect either his football or his ability to go on to father four children. Dean, of course, scored 60 goals in one season. Now this is a bit I think Mike will like. Mm. 17 oh. years later... Dean was in a pub in Chester when a stranger sent him a pint across the bar. He stared at the man's face for a while before it dawned on him that the man was Davy Parks. Dean strode over and greeted his former assailant with a savage beating. I'd done his face up and they took him to the hospital. So are evens, Dean recalled in a radio interview in '78. It was the only time that I ever retaliated. 15 years after the event. I really thought you were going to say... Uh, best mates. took a pint and they spent the evening together. He yeah, beat the life no, out of no. him. 17 years later. <laughs> during his later career, Dean played with a metal plate in his head the result of a life-threatening motorcycle accident which left him with a broken skull and a fractured jaw. Um, you mate? Revenge is a dish best served cold. Can you? Wow. So this this book is is seventeen years ago. You kicked my nuts off. Have this. <laughs> I love that. That's one of the hell. That's one of the best twists to the end of a, yes. of a story. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, here we go. And I now he's the godson. He's the godfather of my children. Exactly. Yeah. No. No. Then I've been in the hospital. Yeah. I don't know if you. I don't know if you've read Valley of Fear, the Sherlock Holmes book, but I would say that is a better twist than Valley of Fear, <laughs> which is an absolute belter, if you like, a detective yeah, fiction. Last week you mentioned uh, when you were talking about Steve Robinson, a guy called Colin McMillan, Sweet C. Yeah. And my book this week is This Bloody Mary is the last thing I own by a guy called Jonathan Rendell. One of my favourite books. Which is a great title. And Jonathan Rendell is, uh, I guess, a modern-day kind of gonzo writer, or is that to do him a disservice? Yes. Is that all right? Is that acceptable? I think so. I, I th- I've read lots of books on boxing, and I think that is probably the most authentic depiction of what boxing is well, like. Because at no point does it make boxing look glamorous. Absolutely. So he becomes a manager, but at no point is he flush with money as a result of this. At no point does any of it sound like it was something you'd want to be involved in, but he is incredibly involved in it. Um, Some of his other work around gambling, he he wrote a book uh, which then became a TV series, on Channel 4 called The Gambler. He eventually kind of died destitute in 2013. Yeah, a young man. Yeah, absolutely. Young man. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of people will view it as a wasted talent and perhaps not something to, to celebrate. But the actual writing within this is beautiful and the story within it, where he's going to Vegas for fights and he's staying not on the strip, but in those sort of off-strip, terrible motels and kind of yeah, hanging yeah, yeah. out with... 
not the celebrity singers, but the looky-likey celebrity singers. All right, mate. All right. <laughs> he, won, he won the Somerset Morm Award. He did. For writing. Yes. But as, as someone who is fascinated by boxing, it is at times a chilling read. Yeah. And a, and a very, very uncomfortable read because, he, you know, he doesn't hold back. It's it's a really, really savage book, but it's um, it's well worth reading. Oh, it is, it's a kind of beautiful in a way. Um, right, that's pretty much us for this week, guys. We have a few guesses in for The Secret Guitarist. Uh, if you want to guess, then if the podcast supplier that you go with allows you to write a review... Give us a five-star uh, rating and leave a review, which is basically a guess. <laughs> F-L-D-S-T-R-D, which for those listeners who've been with us since week one will know that's, that's handle, my man. kind of handle, uh, yeah. says <laughs> uh, Dave Edmonds is his choice. Uh, Jamie Roberts has been guessed by quite a few people recently. What, the rugby player? Yes. Very he decent guitarist. I thought he was a piano. No, I think he's trying to learn the piano at the moment during the lockdown. Whilst he's also, also working he's for also the NHS. Back to being a doctor. He What's has. Up, man? So hats Hero. off to you for that, Jamie. Yeah, indeed. Um, but he's, he's, he's been on stage he... with the Mannix a couple of times. Yeah. Has he? Yes. Wow. On a couple of the yeah, rugby tour ones, Lions tour, and I think during the World Cup just gone as well. Uh, so nothing will... goes apart from the fact he plays rugby for Wales, the British Lions, he's good looking, he's six foot four, and he's, and he's played on stage with the Mannix. He's got an M. Phil from Cambridge as well as these. A very, very clever bloke. I just hope he's got. You just dream of him and a tiny willy, but I, I doubt he has. I doubt it. I really doubt it. Um, Liam Walker says Graham Coxon. Uh, Big Deeks says that chap Ellis used to stalk from the band Gorky's. Um, Zygotic well, Monkey. Uh, it, uh, well, Aros from the Gorkies uh, I'm not at liberty to say if it's him or John Lawrence the first guitarist I'm, I'm, I'm not You're at not liberty, liberty to say, to say. That's, that's, that's all good I'm not at liberty to have say. a listen to it under us now and have yourselves a guess right gentlemen thank you as always we shall be back with another one next week cheers Steph cheers Al. cheers Mike thank you Steph